0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Chinese espionage group THRIP targets satellite communications operators and others in the U.S. and Southeast Asia – Zakinlo Rootkit hides inside a bogus VPN. Developers are leaving Firebase apps insecure. The EU's controversial copyright regulation advances from committee. Card and loader malware is in beta, Anonymous is back with Op Icarus 2018, and the Bitcoin Baron goes to jail. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 20th, 2018. Symantec reported late yesterday its discovery of an extensive Chinese cyber espionage campaign targeting U.S. and Southeast Asian satellite operators, telecommunications companies, and defense contractors. The researchers attribute the activity to THRIP, a Chinese threat group Symantec has tracked for the past five years. The infection of satellite communication systems was particularly noteworthy and troubling. Much of the world's communications passes through communications satellites. The campaign's goal is interception of military and civilian communications. Symantec has notified the appropriate U.S. authorities. According to Bitdefender, the Zakinlo rootkit is out in renewed form, this time concealed within a malicious VPN product, S5 Mark. It affects Windows 10 machines, capturing screenshots and other data and reporting them back to its criminal controllers. Developers' failure to secure Google Firebase apps has resulted in more than 3,000 leaky apps. App Authority says more than 100 million records have been exposed by inattentive development, In fairness to the developers, Firebase is among the most popular, widely used back-end database technologies for mobile applications. Unfortunately, Firebase doesn't secure user data by default. Instead, developers must themselves secure their tables and rows of data. This is the sort of thing that gets overlooked, and so Firebase is an attractive place for attackers to come in search of unsecured data. In another instance of black markets behaving like legitimate markets, the proprietor of the Cardin Loader, whose nom de hack is Yataz, is soliciting beta testing for their malware. Researchers at Arbor's Security Engineering and Response Team, that's ACERT, say Cardin Loader allows users to build their own bot shop with potential for resale on the criminal-to-criminal market. Cardin remains a work in progress, but it will bear watching. The European Parliament passed a new copyright regulation out of committee. To call it controversial is an understatement. Critics, and the critics include coders, users, big tech firms, and internet pioneers, well, they say it will turn the internet into a surveillance and control tool. Particularly objectionable to critics are Articles 11 and 13. Article 11 established a neighboring right for press companies that would require companies like Google and Microsoft to pay those publishers for displaying news snippets. Laws similar to Article 11 in Spain led Google News to exit the Spanish market. Article 13 established mandatory upload filtering that would require platforms to install filters that would block users from uploading copyrighted material without a license to display content. There's no sign of any mitigating fair use reservation. If there's rent-seeking going on here, as there may well be, It would appear to be on behalf of big publishing houses. Critics note that the law would have a stifling effect on much internet discourse. This is easy to see in the case of memes, but it would have more widespread effects as well. Passing from committee is a first step, so this isn't EU law yet. It will have to be negotiated through the EU members' national authorities, and the law's opponents are unlikely to make that an easy process. News broke yesterday of reported sabotage by an insider at Tesla with an email to employees from CEO Elon Musk stating that the employee had made changes to the code in manufacturing systems and had sent highly sensitive data to unknown third parties. Musk wrote, quote, His motivation is that he wanted a promotion that he did not receive. In light of these actions, not promoting him was definitely the right move, end quote. So how do these revelations affect Tesla from a risk perspective? We checked in with Chris Pearson, CEO of Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors, for his take on the matter.
1: The risks here are actually quite interesting. I mean, first of all, they're dealing with an intellectual property uh, risk. The theft of potentially intellectual property from them could not only serve to fuel other competitors uh, globally, uh, or like I said, other governments in terms of a race for self-driving autonomous vehicles. So that's that's quite important there. Uh, from a product side, if there are vulnerabilities or flaws, you now have cyber, some type of potential cybersecurity risk, uh, which could be seen into these vehicles. You also have massive legal risk. I mean, you know, once again, a material cyber risk is something that they would have to report if this is an occurrence that met that threshold of being something that, uh, investors uh, should know about, shareholders should know about. I also think there's a there's an enormous reputational risk, uh, even on top of the cybersecurity risks. And this is, uh, you know, how do you trust uh, the underlying operating system that's within the vehicles? How do you trust the operating systems, the, the manufacturing plant? How do you actually look at those? So So I think there are a few different risks there. It's definitely one of those things that is, perhaps around ones and zeros, but just goes home to prove the point that, look, at the end of the day, Tesla is an IT company, obviously an IT company in terms of the autonomous machines that they're uh, potentially creating and looking towards for creating, but they are an IT company first and foremost, and the vehicle company and energy company second and third and fourth.
0: Yeah, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on the regulatory side of things. I mean, you think about in the past we've had manufacturers have had trouble with uh, well, any any number of things that auto manufacturers have had to do recalls for. Uh-huh. Um, but it seems like uh, when a car, when the ratio of software to steel in a car continues to shift towards software, uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of a
1: new world. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, um, you know, I think that Tesla's lucky in that regard in terms of the automated updates and the pushing of updates that they have. They've shown quite consistently over the years that they're able to go ahead and fix items, patch items, do massive updates to their vehicles. So if there was something in there, let's just say there are 100 lines of code that have been replaced or something, or there's something that's vulnerable, uh, I think they have a pattern in history of showing that they can and will uh, push massive updates to their vehicle fleets, and and so I think that really mitigates uh, mitigates things there. One other risk here, quite honestly, I mean, when we look at Elon Musk, when we look at the books and the articles and the speeches, uh, you know, a lot of what he does and a lot of what he talks about is culture. It is possible, and this is the thing I'd be a little worried about. It is possible that this amount of of theft could cause some type of shift in terms of trusting employees, trusting insiders. That may be more damaging long-term in terms of the types of controls that are implemented if there's as much free sharing with employees, if there's as much trust with employees as a result of this. And, and once again, one bad apple shouldn't uh, make a uh, massive change for the whole environment, but I can bet you their security teams are actually looking at how do we think about insiders and employees as on the team but maybe with a few tighter controls and a few tighter barriers there.
0: That's Chris Pearson from Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors. Cryptocurrencies fell today on news that another South Korean exchange, BitHum, was looted of about $31 million. Coming less than two weeks after the theft at CoinRail, which lost a reported $37 million, the loss has shaken confidence in cryptocurrency markets. While speculators will continue to pursue alternative currencies, and while they've established a place for themselves in financial markets, investors might apply the same risk reward calculus they would use, for example, when investing in a highly speculative growth stock. As high tech bridge CEO Ilya Kolichenko put it in an email, users who entrust their digital coins to third parties should be prepared to never see them again. This is the reality of modern Bitcoin Klondike. BitHum is not an inconsiderable exchange, although it's not the largest. WebRoot senior threat research analyst Tyler Moffat said, quote, To be hacked is a huge deal in the crypto world and will definitely have an impact on this speculative market, End quote. He sees BitHum's offer to cover lost funds from its own reserves as a kind of silver lining. At least the customers won't take a bath. And he notes that BitHum has moved its remaining coins to an offline cold wallet. Moffitt notes that it's important to understand that this was loss of access to the private keys of online wallets, not the hacking or manipulation of the blockchain itself. So it's analogous to the sort of credential loss that has become the norm for all manner of cybercrime. Moffitt pointed out, quote, anyone who has these private keys is going to be able to withdraw funds as if they were the legitimate owner. Storing these keys on a computer or cloud backup, especially in plain text, is just asking for trouble, end quote. In his view, hardware wallets are a better option for holders of cryptocurrencies. Akamai notes the declarations of Op Icarus 2018 emerging from the hive mind of Anonymous. The anarcho-syndicalist collective's calls to action threaten and inspire attacks on financial institutions between the 21st and 28th of June. The operation includes or subsumes several other OPs, Op Payback, Op Icarus, Delete the Elite, and SOS Nicaragua. Anonymous Ops have tended to fizzle badly over the last several years, and it's been a long time since Anonymous has counted any meaningful coup, but the declared targets would do well to be on heightened alert over the next week or so. And finally, speaking of altcoins and Anonymous, there's a minor harmonic convergence of the twain in the world of crime and punishment. InfoSecurity Magazine reports that the Bitcoin baron of Apache Junction, Arizona has received a sentence of 20 months for charges related to his online activity. Randall Charles Tucker, 23, was convicted of organizing a distributed denial-of-service attack against the city of Madison, Wisconsin. His motives remain unclear, possibly because those motives themselves lack clarity, but the best bet is that he saw himself as an idealistic hacktivist in the anonymous mold, Mr. Tucker has a bit of a track record. The Madison DDoS might have been prompted by a police shooting, but on the other hand, Mr. Tucker is also said to have hacked a children's hospital with inappropriate images of children. Why is he called the Bitcoin Baron? Don't know, but it's the title he gave himself, like a less effectual version of Star-Lord from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Probably poorer taste in movies and music, too. Mr. Tucker's claim of idealism have therefore prompted either skepticism or a so much the worse for idealism reaction. It's sad, really, when you can't trust the discretion, the target selection, and the aim of an anarcho syndicalist and altcoin speculator. Well, who can you trust in this veil of tears? And joining me once again is Aweis Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Welcome back Awais. Um, we want to talk today about the importance of real world experimentation, uh, getting out of the lab and uh, with your research and practice. What do you have to share with us about that today?
2: I think the challenge we are going to face is that within the next few years, the number of devices connected to each other and the internet will outnumber humans by, depending on whose estimate, do you believe, something like five to one. <laughs> uh, and you know, these these, these uh, systems of connected devices will underpin everything from healthcare to transport to energy and finance. Uh, and, you know, the way we, we communicate and share information with each other will change. So we are really talking about, you know, really large scale hyperconnected systems. So as a result, you know, we, we, need to, we need to ensure that what we develop in the lab actually works in the real world. And as a result, you know, the way to test any kind of security solutions and architectures has to be to deploy them in the wild and understand what are the implications of that. However, that, that is very, very challenging because, of course, you can't deploy uh, prototypical uh, solutions on production environments because, of course, they, they may not necessarily be fit for purpose or scale very well. So we really do need uh, large-scale experimental infrastructures that are close enough to the real world to be able to do that. And that's that's a big challenge.
0: Yeah, well, there's that old saying of, of uh, from Warfare that uh, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. It seems like that could apply here as well.
2: Uh, absolutely and that's exactly the reason that normally what happens is and uh, we develop we develop things they they are developed with with rigor and with all good intentions uh, by by researchers and practitioners but usually we test them on small scale things in the lab or in an experimental setting and then when they are deployed in real world infrastructures they don't always scale i'm not saying that they never scale they don't always scale and that's why we need to think about as to how we might be able to do this there are a number of academic and industry organizations organizations that run test beds, And I think there, might, uh, there, there is a good argument for us to try and link some of these testbed infrastructures together so that we do have a economies of scale, but also that really large scale environment that would represent uh, the realistic setting in which security takes place in, in the real world.
0: I'm thinking of uh, the rigorous testing that, that takes place when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Um, is that not a good example? Is, is it simply too expensive to do something at that scale?
2: I think it's, it's, it's not a case of expense. It's how you may, may deploy and test something. And the pharmaceutical industry is an interesting example because the, the trials only move on to uh, uh, large-scale clinical trials once they've gone through smaller-scale testing and then increasing level of confidence is built up. And I think we do need to be able to do something very, very similar. But the question is, how do we test in the wild? For example, would you be willing to deploy an experimental uh, security solution on, say, a power grid or a, or a nuclear power plant or a transportation system? And I think you would have to have a lot of confidence and then a lot of fail-safes built into it. And I think we need to develop those kind of protocols. Other disciplines have developed those protocols. And I think we are a little bit further from that at this point in time.
0: Weiss Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security